Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Wednesday the 8th of July 2020. Mark Pender is stateside, Brian Jackson's in Sydney and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. In Hong Kong, China's hardline security law came into effect last week. The US subsequently announced it would revoke Hong Kong's special trading status, while the UK, which described the move as a clear and serious breach of the 1985 Hando Agreement, has offered citizenship to some 3 million Hong Kong residents. Tensions between China and the West continue to build, adding another unwanted layer of uncertainty to the already clouded outlook for global trade caused by COVID-19. For Hong Kong, which last year almost overtook Singapore as the world's third largest foreign exchange trading centre, there are now doubts about the sustainability of its status as a major international financial hub. It's always been a gateway between the East and the West, but might it now just become a home for wealthy Chinese investors? Is Beijing's move just something that will blow over, or could it have much more serious longer-term implications? Brian, what's the feeling in your part of the world? Oh, there's a lot of concern, um, you know, here in Australia and elsewhere in the region about what the, um, you know, the the long-term implications of this are. Uh, but but um, you know, it is very early in the process, so it's still hard to to be definitive about just, um, you know, what Beijing's uh, long-term intentions are, whether they're um, you know, using the this opportunity to to try and tighten its control, um, given that the rest of the world is pretty much um, preoccupied with other uh, problems, or whether you know that they still do see uh, Hong Kong uh, as a distinct part of of you know the, the of the, the greater Chinese nation, and they want to maintain some sort of um, you know degree of distinctiveness. So you know, it, it's it's very hard for for anyone outside you know the the state council in Beijing to really know what their long-term plans are, but you know what they've um, shown by uh, introducing this new law is that they they definitely do want to uh, tighten things up, and yeah, it's it's going to be um, you know a, a rather difficult uh, process for Hong Kong to uh, try and adjust to. So. Um, what do you think are the implications for well for business really is in Hong Kong, at least international businesses? Um, I think you were talking the other day about you know, well, this potential not necessarily perhaps a wall of money, but you know funds coming in um, from mainland China into Hong Kong. Is that going to be sufficient? That businesses will want to try and maintain a base there rather than perhaps just pulling out of Hong Kong altogether. I, I, I think so. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not 100% sure, but. Um, it's still going to have a lot of advantages, I think, for a lot of businesses to be there, uh, to have access to the, the Chinese market, even if they do have concerns about, you know, the, their own staff and their own uh, companies being subject to this new law, there is still a, a big incentive to still be involved in Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, it's, there's no guarantee that uh, you won't see some uh some firms and some uh, individuals think, well, you know, this is uh, there are other places we can do business in, in the region and might be worth considering that. So Singapore is is the obvious example, mm-hmm. and you know, Hong Kong and Singapore have have always sort of been in this sort of um, uh, competition with each other, you know, for, for for many years now to to attract talent and business, and and so obviously this is something that Singapore might be able to uh, take advantage of, and and obviously the other um, uh, you know, the other rival to Hong Kong's status as a big financial centre is, is Shanghai over the last 10, 15 years, as China has relaxed some of the uh, 
the the rules relating to uh, financial firms doing business in China. You have seen uh, Shanghai uh, take up a bit of um, you know that role, but uh, you know for for the time being, I think you know a lot of business is still uh, you know indicating that Hong Kong is still a very big part of their um, their plans going forward. Maybe that's to make sure that they don't um, you know get on the wrong side of Beijing, but um, you know for for the time being. Um, you know, the markets are definitely sort of suggesting that, uh, you know, Hong Kong is still a, a place where, where they think it's important to be. So I guess there's been no obvious signs of pressure on the, the Hong Kong dollar peg. Uh, there has been, um, uh, you know, I, I think not necessarily relating to to this development. There has um, definitely been a lot of, uh, uh, you know, flows in and out of Hong Kong that has put some pressure on that peg, but the Hong Kong authorities have, have shown, as they have for you know, many years now, that they are able to defend those levels that they, that, you know, that they have marked down. So, I don't think the the Hong Kong peg is um, under a lot of pressure at the moment. But you know, the, the, if uh, you know things were to um, escalate, then obviously that would make it more difficult for them to to keep um, the, the currency where they want it to be. Uh, but you know, I think at the moment, you know, right now the you know, the, the focus of, of media attention is, is more on what this means for individual Hong Kongers, um, you know, whether, uh, you know, it's going to, you know, significantly uh, change, uh, you know, the freedoms and, and the rights that they've enjoyed for a long time. Mm. All interesting stuff. Watch this space, as they say. OK, um, while well, we quickly stick with you then, rest of your part of sort of the world, anything else we should be aware of that's catching your eye or certainly a market interest at the moment? Oh, I mean, obviously, it's, you know, just looking at the economic data, I think the the issue right now is, you know, are we talking about growth rates or levels? Um, so we've seen uh, across most of the indicators that we track here, uh, some signs of either stabilisation or even recovery uh, in, in some of the, you know, the numbers. But we've got to also be aware that this is from very, very um, uh, low levels after mm-hmm. you know, the, the sharp drop in activity that took place you know, around February, March. As the pandemic hit, so um, economies are sort of starting to get off the canvas, but you know they're still not you know anywhere near back to where they were at the start of the year in terms of, of the actual levels. And of course, all this has been predicated on um, you know improvements in public health conditions uh, across these uh, countries, and also on very strong stimulus from uh, officials over the last few months. So if the public health conditions continue to improve, given that amount of stimulus that is in the system, you would expect to see, um, you know, further recovery and, you know, eventually a return to those uh, pre-pandemic levels in activity. But it's a big if, obviously, uh, that we won't have a, a second wave or a second sort of surge in cases across mm-hmm. the region. We're already seeing in some parts of Asia and, and the Pacific area, um, you know, some worrying signs that we might have a, a second wave, you know, particularly here in Australia over the last uh, week or so. Uh, we've had um, a, a big pickup in cases in Melbourne, the second biggest city here in Australia. And uh, so that's, um, you know, threatening to derail the recovery that we've got here. And, you know, that could be played out in other parts of the region as well. OK, thank you very much for that. Mr. Pender. America's stock market's just had its best quarter in 20 years. What, the S&P was up 20% or so, something like that, remember, on the quarter? Yeah. The, the COVID numbers are going the wrong way. So what, what's going on? 
a, a, a disconnect. Uh, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, I think it's the stimulus that, uh, and, the, and the hot money and the cheap funding uh, that all the stimulus uh, is, is providing uh, financial firms and they're uh, pouring it into the stock market because if you know we're back at the levels that we were before the crisis and um the crisis is whether or not the crisis is uh is easing that's another question but um the economy has changed uh with uh the uh with the virus and uh it's hard to believe that output will be and profitability will be unchanged uh as it uh uh from the in this post world certainly there's so much stimulus as brian was talking about uh, already in the cake that uh there is a probably a good chance of uh you know continued gains um maybe more in the financial markets and in the actual economy. Uh, it's a very difficult uh, uh, separation right now. It's not, you know, anything that the Fed yet says it's worried about, but it may, it may come to that because what we're talking about is financial stability, and that's a very important thing, and it's their third uh, uh, foundation, their third pillar of policy. And uh, if they're feeding an asset bubble, um, another uh, trouble there uh, would would you know make this whole would would add another level of crisis to the crisis. Okay, let me ask you about the um, if I can the employment report from last week, which okay. almost, people have almost seem to have forgotten about that now. There's so much else going on, particularly with the likes of uh, China and Hong Kong and so on, and, and all the politics. Now, yeah. superficially, again, another strong report, but you, I think, still have your doubts, don't you, about just how these how these numbers are put together, or at least how they're identifying different brackets of the employment or unemployment report itself. Yes. Um, I don't think that there's any doubt that there's a gigantic uh, job creation going on. Uh, the uh, June report came out at 4.8 million uh, payroll jobs. It's new payroll jobs. And that follows 2.7 million in May. Of course, now it, it plunged uh, in, in April. So um, in March. But what's also going on, uh, today's Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday morning, we're going to, to once again get jobless claims. What's also going on is uh, a tremendous amount of job destruction. Uh, at the same time, we're getting new creation. And this is picked up not only anecdotally, but also within the uh, statistical reports themselves, which are uh, warning to a greater degree that businesses are closing, which affects our sample size in a you know in a specific way. But uh, it also reflects the fact that this crisis is and it, the economic changes that it's bringing about um, are still uh, ha- still have a very strong negative impacts, and um, so. Is the worst behind for employment? Certainly employment now is uh, one of the big pluses for the U.S. economy, at least in its degree of recovery. So uh, even though it's below the levels it was, of course, before, uh, as, as Brian was mentioned, all the levels are lower than they were in February. Um, but the growth is very, very strong. How long can that continue with all the stimulus? I don't know. But uh, what the stimulus can't do is um, uh, that you know specifically a, a, uh, it's apart from 
the actual changes in production and delivery of uh, goods and services. And that's going under some kind of a, a metamorphosis right now. And uh, part of that metamorphosis is some places gaining jobs, perhaps online and other places losing jobs, uh, forward facing services. Yeah, interesting times. The whole structure of these economies seems to be rapidly changing, doesn't it? At least perhaps yeah. that's how they survive in the future. Well, okay. now, what about, let me ask you about Switzerland. Yep. They, I, I, tell us about unemployment in Switzerland, if there is any. Oh, so I'm not sure if I really want to, because it doesn't fit in with any of the stories we're talk, talking about elsewhere, really. No, I mean, you're right to point it out. I mean, what we can say about Switzerland at the moment, certainly within the context of what's happening in continental Europe, is that it seems to be outperforming. So without, you know, plugging too many numbers we did as you mentioned we had the, the Swiss unemployment data out of Switzerland earlier on today these were for June I mean previously so for May the season adjusted unemployment rate was only at 3.4 anyway which historically speaking is not particularly high for, for Switzerland and clearly compared to most other countries is in fact extremely low expectations inevitably were that it would see a rise we start to see the economy struggling under the weight of COVID-19 but it fell down to 3.3 percent now, OK, the actual number of unemployed did go up, but nonetheless, we've seen a significantly stronger in general than expected um, employment data for June. May retail sales are quite remarkable because we saw a surge there. And these are volume sales, not nominal sales, they're volume sales. And as of May, they're back above where they were in February before the coronavirus struck. So taken at face value, it would appear um that you know the swiss authorities have managed the coronavirus uh, situation particularly well in switzerland um it would also it would appear to certainly to be the case that the the hit to the economy wasn't as substantial as it was let's say in the likes of a uh, you know, france or a spain or italy but nonetheless so far for switzerland it looks as if the economy is outperforming um now that's going to be interesting i think for the snb um, as we've talked about often on this podcast, they've been struggling for so long uh, with the strength of the Swiss franc. And the problem for them could well be if we see COVID issues uh, you know, re returning or the second wave or call it what you will in other countries in Europe or states or, or Asia. Um, it could, we could end up seeing additional capital inflows into the Swiss franc, which makes the Swiss franc even stronger. And as we've said before, the, the Swiss National Bank really doesn't want to cut interest rates any deeper into negative territory. So it's certainly it's an interesting to want, one to watch, I think, at the moment, Switzerland. For the rest of Europe, however, things really aren't quite so good, I don't think. Um, we have seen, if anything, I guess, some signs that uh, demand, at least private sector demand, is is picking up as as both yourself and Brian were saying, really from extremely low levels. So there's a long way to go yet. But signs of growth coming through there, there, but still a long way short of where we were in February time. Output and there's limited output data available really for the Eurozone currently. That appears to be coming back much more slowly. And I think you know, the idea of any kind of V-shaped recovery for the Eurozone still looks to be pretty unlikely at the, at the moment. And prospects here really continue not to be helped by the, you know, the stimulus side of things things. I think Brahma's mentioned about the stimulus in his part of the world. You're talking about you know, all the stuff that's been thrown out um, in, into the states from, or be it the Fed or particularly coming from the administration. But for Europe, there's still this kind of logjam in terms of getting this agreement, this coordinated agreement on what's going to happen on the fiscal front. So there's still no concrete um, settlement about what they're going to do in terms of this COVID rescue plan. Um, they want to get 
this thing through, it's worth, what, 750 billion euros. It needs to be allocated as quickly as possible. But as we speak at the moment, uh, there's still disagreements about the overall size, how the, how it's going to be allocated, who's going to pay for it. So it really does seem if it's going to be delivered, it's going to be delivered well, effectively too late for a lot of countries, which currently now maintains the onus on the, the poor old European Central Bank to come out and do whatever it can. Um, there will be another ECB meeting uh, Thursday week, so next Thursday. But really, they've just come out and you know, eased, sub substantially eased monetary policy via their um, um, pandemic emergency fund. And it's hard to see them doing anything else. But I think you've got to think if the, uh, the European Commission side of things can't get their act together, then it's going to be monetary policy, which will continue to, to bear the brunt of trying to get the eurozone economy going again. Um, what else from my side? I guess I should could mention the UK. Um, it's still question marks over just how the UK is going to perform during the during this process. I think the, the sense has been it's been hit partly amongst the hardest of the countries within Europe. And I suppose that's reflected in the announcement today we had from the Stuck Chancellor. He came out with a new summer statement, which is really built around trying to protect the labour market. So if it's fully used and um, this package of measures includes a temporary cut in VAT on hospitality business, particularly aimed at tourism. So that's going to see the VAT rate down from 20% to 5%. Is given additional monies to try and help job retention once we see the furloughing scheme ending. There's other help coming for um, eating out. Eating out. There's vouchers being provided to restaurants and things. So there's all in all, it could amount to the best part of about 30 billion sterling or so if it were fully used. So it does highlight, certainly as far as the UK is concerned, government here is still throwing an awful lot of money at the UK economy trying to turn it round. Um, and again, I suppose for financial markets, that's important because it's not just COVID figures, you know, which are, are worrying investors over here. It's Brexit and Brexit talks last week. They broke up a day early. Both sides still a long way apart. So at this stage, it's anyone's guess as to whether or not we're going to get what, what, what we can call a soft Brexit. That is, if they can get a respectable trade deal between the two sides or a hard Brexit, whereby essentially the UK walks away without any deal whatsoever. So sterling likely to remain, well, really amongst the most volatile currencies, I think, within Europe at the moment. And Jeremy, just across yeah. Europe, is there, um, you know, a general sense that the, at least the, the COVID is tracking the right way or are there some worrying signs that we might have, you know, a, a, a renewal of concerns about the disease in, in some parts of the of well, I think area. in some ways, I mean, I think the Europe is kind of tracking Aussie a little bit in a sense. I know you've got the problems in Melbourne at the moment, but as I understand it, that, that's kind of it, isn't it? I think for your part of the world, at least for Australia. Uh, at the moment, yeah. 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 Well, I think you know, f f for Europe, um, there have been some relatively small local outbreaks in Spain, Germany and also the Balkans. But there haven't really been any sort of major setbacks since they started easing restrictions and looking at you know, the broader COVID numbers then without wishing to take fate you know they're all kind of heading in the right direction at the moment so i think with a general sense that so long as they can manage any kind of second wave then you know okay europe's going to struggle like the rest of the world but you know, unlike some parts of the, you know, the global economy um the covid numbers at least may not be the big problem they could be elsewhere so it's, uh, yeah. jeremy could they be a problem in the uk it uh we had some spotty reopenings here uh, with lots of, uh, you know, 
leisure and hospitality in restaurants in, yep. uh, in certain states. And uh, we're seeing, um, you know, an alarming uh, spike going on in those. And the pictures they're sending around on the, you know, on, when you guys went to the pubs the other day, they, the, you guys were packing them in. So, I mean, what is I mean, I think, it? Yeah, what do I think, health authorities think, say about that? Well, I think to be fair, I mean, uh, as they say, sex sells. Um, so I think it's, you know, the photographs which made the media were those places where they, as you say, they were packing them in. The idea of social distancing went completely out the window. You know, some pubs had to shut early. But on average, I think the you know, the response from the, the would-be pub goer is that they're not completely convinced it's safe to go back to the pub yet in the first place. And this, to be honest, is one of the issues for you know the the hospitality industry in general. And while, as I mentioned, the chance has just come out and given these 50% off vouchers for August to encourage consumers to go back to restaurants and the like just to spend some money. So I think, but the broader picture, I think you're, you're exactly right. At this stage, until you really see the implications of the gradual withdrawal, let alone the complete withdrawal of all these COVID restrictions, then you're simply not going to know whether the things COVID's been addressed properly or there's some second wave in which case well we just have to wait to see what on earth happens about that so I think it is one of these things yes for, for the UK and Europe on the whole it's good news in the sense that the directions in you know, is going the right way but it that may or may not be a short run thing okay um right anyone for anything else Okay, good. In which case, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, That is it for today. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, remember, you can keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. So from Mark, Brian and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.